Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, if you didn't hear that. Uh, And usually we take eight weeks at the beginning of the fall each year to outline what it is we believe, what our convictions are, how we operate as a church. And what we're doing this year is basically saying what's written in the book of Ephesians, all of it, the, the whole six chapters of it, are essentially what we believe, how we operate, and why we've kind of built our church and you know, continue on in our church the way that we do. Uh, and so hopefully as we go through this book, uh, we're shaped uh, yet again by what our convictions really are and that we're reminded about what we really believe and why we're doing this thing uh, in the church, in the body. Uh, but today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. And this passage always uh, makes me think of this, this aspect of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus uh, began his ministry. He was uh, a remarkable man. He was uh, kind and compassionate. But then when he began his ministry, he began saying things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Repent and believe. Uh, God is reaching into this world. He walked around healing the sick, the lame. He sought out uh, outcasts because of the diseases that they had. And he touched them and he saw them. Uh, He taught with authority. All of these really wonderful things. And then he became famous for the kinds of people that he spent time with. Specifically, who he ate with. Uh, Jesus became famous for someone who eats with Uh, the messed up, the broken, the terrible misfits. Uh, Every feast of his was a misfit table. And at that time, critics came up to him and said, who is this guy that does this? And then Jesus responds to their criticism and he says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. I came for the sick. But then he also adds... I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. And so for me, when Jesus says, I came for the sick, I think, absolutely, you came for me. I am the sick. I messed up. Heal me. I have all sorts of issues uh, that have been put on me by the people around me. Since I was a child, I had things that people made fun, fun of me for, and I've been abused and neglected. I've struggled. I'm sick. I'm wounded. I need a healer. Yes, Jesus came for me. But then he says, I also, I came for sinners, which confuses me. You know, I thought, I thought Jesus was coming for someone like me, who uh, is simply worn down and beaten by this broken world. Not a sinner. Is that really? Did Jesus come for me in that? I'm not the problem. This disease is, right? But then Jesus keeps saying over and over again to people like me, come to the table and you'll see. Grace, which is what Ephesians 2 is all about, is my favorite doctrine to not believe. I functionally believe uh, merit alone for myself, and then kind of grace for all of you people. Like, you all need it, that's really great. And the reason I, I hardly believe this to be true, this grace doctrine, is because I think I don't need it. Like, I am kind of a good person. Like, I, I give financially to all the right things. I show up 
most of the time on time. Like I, I'm prepared, I'm gifted, I'm skilled. Uh, I haven't, you know, destroyed the world. I never plotted to do, you know, infanticide or genocide or any of those things. I don't think that I needed this grace stuff. And then the other side of it is, the reason I hardly believe it, is because I want to deserve everything that Jesus has to offer. I want merit-based privileges. Like a kid at school, like, I've behaved really well, therefore I get a pizza party. I want to walk into the kingdom of God on that wonderful, glorious day and have everyone turn and cheer me on and say, here he comes, Brad. (laughs) And then I want to see Jesus walk up to me as I'm standing tall and him say to me, you deserve to be here. All on your own. Welcome to the kingdom of God. But the problem is this image of Jesus throughout the Gospels, of him with his friends, of him with uh, misfits at tables, or him on boats calming seas, or walking on the water itself, or him in courtrooms where he's being uh, misjudged, but he's putting himself under it, when his body is spread out on a cross, then when he walks alive in the garden, all of those pictures for me buckle my knees. And then I read Ephesians 2, and I come to this conclusion, I actually need grace, whether I want to believe it or not. And that the, that the way of Jesus actually is the way. It's the, the way of the most love, the greatest hope, it's the way of the most salvation, it's the way of the best life we could dream of, and Jesus is actually the only way towards any life at all. And so that's what... Ephesians 2 is all about, at least for me this morning, but I'm pretty sure it's true for everyone. Uh, Let's read it together. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and and he raised us up, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. He begins this passage with, and you, or as for you, 
uh, to remind us of what he had just said. Uh, last week, Tripp preached really well, uh, as he often does, uh, on the, the, this, what comes before here, which is this picture of Jesus being raised to, to life, him being above all things, the fullness of God dwelling in him, him being in all, and him being over all. Uh, Jesus is like that. And then Paul says, but as for you, you are dead. Dead. There's not a lot of scientists out there exploring the potential of a dead brain and heart and body. Sometimes we dissect them to say, what went wrong with this human? Every now and then we might take a really good human and cut them in half and take their brains out and say, what do you think made them so good? Einstein's brain is so heavy, maybe that has something to do with it. But generally, scientists don't study the amazing wonders of the dead. Philosophers, their ideas for death basically end with, I don't know what happens afterwards. But no one's sitting around trying to explore the dead. Why? Because dead things are dead. To just sort of state the obvious. There's life and then there's death. In life, there's all this potential and activity and wonders and all of these things. But death is useless. We have no use for those that are dead in our world. We have no use for a lifeless existence. But here he says, as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That the death that exists in us is from these trespasses and sins. Now, we don't often use the word trespass a lot unless uh, you have a nice ranch and you put up a sign that says no trespassing. Or some places around here, no trespassing, beware of dog, owner with gun, that kind of thing. But trespassing, biblically, just to make it sort of simple for us to have some handles for, means that we exceed the mark, that we go out of bounds, that we choose more than our station as created and as creature. It's it's essentially the very beginning of, of sin and brokenness in the world when we say we want to decide what is good and right and beautiful and functioning for ourselves. We want to say, I know there's this boundary of me being a limited, finite person, but I'm going to step out into this world where I am God, and I get to be the center of the universe, and I get to decide for myself what is right in my own eyes. I get to be God. I get to choose for myself, this thing that God said is not that worthwhile, because he must be withholding from me. I can go and choose this other thing. Instead, I can be like him. That's trespasses. And Paul says, you were dead in that. But not just trespasses, but also sins. Here also, it simply means to miss this mark of humanity. That that God created us as image bearers of God, to be loving and compassionate and slow to anger and just and forgiving and all of these things. And that's what it means to be human. Uh, But what we decide to do instead is to become less than human. 
that is sins. To say, I know I'm supposed to be forgiving, but instead I will gossip and hold grudges. I know I was created to be unbelievably loving towards others, but I will instead hold for myself these things. I will steal from people. I will manipulate others. Instead of being compassionate, we become selfish and self-serving. That is sins. And so he says, you are dead and you're going outside of the bounds and going below the bounds as well. This is why we're dead. And we might say, well, how did we get there? He says here, because we followed the course of the world. This is one of my favorite reasons, right? Like the world has this pattern, not just here in America or in Los Angeles, but the world itself has this pattern which says, no, you should be God. You should do what you want to do. You, like, you should continue to do whatever makes you feel good and to stay important, do those things. It's the fabric of our culture which says, there is no God. And he also says it's not just the world, but it's also the prince of the power of air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's not just the world that we're following, just sort of like a fish thrown into a stream, but it's also the devil himself is speaking and telling us and tempting us, saying, God is withholding. You should be God yourself. Yes, you were created to be this marvel of a human, but you don't really have to do that. So there's that. The devil is conspiring against us. I like those first two. Like, I'm off the hook. But then he says, among whom, these sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That in the end as well, not only is this the way the world works, not only is the spirit of the devil, the prince of the power of the air, speaking these lies and temptations, but also we do what we want to do. Like in the end, we decide, and we choose, and we do the behaviors, we have the attitudes that we choose. We do what our body wants. We do what our mind wants. And this is what happens. uh, These three things all together. A lot of times what we want to do is say, I'm sorry, I totally messed up, but that was my evil twin that's controlled by the devil. Or we want to say, well, what else was I supposed to do? I live in this world that's crazy. Or what else was I supposed to do? This is the urges of my body. This is how my brain works. You want me to change my personality. But what happens is, it's all three of those that put us in trespasses and sin. All conspiring against us, and we ourselves conspiring against ourselves. That's what happens in blockbuster you know, sins that get examined later on in life when we find out that uh, other people know about what we've done and the consequences are really great. This is also what happens in the minutia, the little small things 
these white lies or uh, excuses that we give or things that we cover up that we're hiding all the time, hoping no one ever calls us out on it. Hoping that our friends never tell us, man, Brad, you're kind of a jerk. And in the end, we've defiled men and women. We've assaulted them. Even if it's from a distance, even if it's as we purchase things in the mall and the real rampage has happened miles and miles away. We cheat on sacred unions. We betray friends. We wound one another. We uphold injustice. We've said, I am God and everybody else exists for me. Trespass. While simultaneously we say, I will be less than what I've called. Sin. We are sons of disobedience, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And in these first three verses, he's saying, this is death. That whole cocktail of disobedience is itself death. Not saying there's a future death, but it is death today. We're already there. Wrath is a a current state Not this future thing that we long to see happen to other people, but wrath is a thing that's happening to everyone who is just like everybody else, going their own way. And he says, this is death. And something between the lines here, I think it it sort of gets conjured up in our own like image of God, is this, as we read these, we think, and we're supposed to know, human life was made for more than these three verses. Like, this is not a human existence. This isn't living at all. This is death. Also, between the lines, you can also see that even if you get away with it, so to speak, all of this trespassing and sin, even if you can put yourself up as God and expect less of yourself than what God has called you to, and you abuse, and you cheat, and you steal, and you kill people, and you destroy people, but in the end you get away with it because you live on a mansion on the hill, or you get this executive suite somewhere, or you get all the things that other people say you should have. Even if you end up you know, in the UN in charge of the globe, there is no getting away with it because you've been dead the whole time. Or... Even if you give all that you have to the poor, you win Nobel Peace Prizes, you adopt all of the orphans in the world, and you walk around as the hero that this world desperately needs, the ruler of your own life, this passage is saying you're still dead. And then in verse 4 through 7, he says, But God has made us alive with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places with him. You've been saved. But God has made you alive. In Christ, with Christ, he's raised you up with him. He seated you in the heavenly places with him. You've been saved. Why? 
because of his rich mercy, because of God's great love, that even when you were dead and you were trying to be God yourself and doing all of these other things, God loved you. True? That even uh, when you were dead, he was dying to raise you up. When you sinned, he was conspiring before the foundations of the world to save. When you sought the desires of your own flesh and your own mind, he sought you to the depths of the earth and back again. Christ doesn't just raise himself up to say, look at this amazing thing that I've done. Death does not defeat God. No, he raises up from the dead to raise us up with him. And then we find in this but God verse that everything that's true about Jesus in chapter 1 gets given to us even though we don't deserve it in chapter 2. He doesn't just raise himself up, he raises us up. Not only is he alive, but we're alive. Jesus doesn't just sit at the right hand of God, he seats us there with him giving us the status as a child of God, giving us the status as a citizen of the kingdom of God, giving us every spiritual blessing to someone who's seated high in this place of authority and blessing. The authority that Jesus has over evil and every power, we are given that authority, seated at the right hand of God. The power that Jesus has to push away all darkness, we're given that power. The power to make the love of God known clearly, we have. The life that Jesus has, we've been given. This is amazing grace. The equation gets reversed, right? You know, like, we are born in this world, we do what the world says, we listen to the devil, we do whatever we want, we destroy the world, and we're supposed to be dead. That's the equation. Our identity is supposed to be children of wrath. But God, because he loves us so much, even in that, even in our death and dying ways, God loves us so much, instead of calling us children of wrath, he seats us at the right hand of God with him, holds us and our identity as someone who is in Christ, not dead and apart. This, on its own, is like Bible-shutting, I'm good kind of news. Like this, period, It's why so many people make just those facts that I just shared the entirety of like the gospel message of Jesus. Because that alone is phenomenal, that God would do that. That he would love us with that kind of love. But then verse 5, or sorry, 7, says this. God does all of that, this on its own amazing grace, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He does all of this so that one day, in the coming ages, far in the future, he might show us so much more. 
Essentially what he's saying, all of this great grace that you've had is just a stepping stone so that I can blow your socks off with the amount of grace that you can't even contain as a dead person here on earth. All of this grace that we're discussing, Jesus himself, him raising us from the dead, him making us alive in this body today, which is on its own wonderful, is just a sample, just a preview of the grace that he will show us. In verse 8 and 9 he says, And you didn't do anything to deserve it. Both the grace and the faith he's given to us. God, understanding how dead people work, raises us. Not with our own will or power or strength. He just raises us up from the dead. He didn't do anything to earn it. It's just grace. And no one gets to come into the kingdom proud. Why would we? We come in amazed and joyful at what God has done. Amazed. And then lastly in verse 10 he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created in Christ Jesus. Not only raised to life, not just seated at this place that we don't deserve to sit at, not only saved, but created, formed in Christ. Shaped, we're we're remade, we've been given a new identity. And what is that identity? It's that we're His workmanship. We're, We're recreated, we're made new because of this whole thing. We're alive and we're His masterpiece. His handiwork. His magnum opus. You can sort of imagine this guy in his garage tinkering with these things, trying to make you know, his sort of love-passion project. Or what so many of us have, you know, this side deal. You know, whether it's to become this spokesperson of cranberry juice of some kind, or if it's some other side project of, of making it big as a blogger or whatever it might be. God's over there sort of creating this masterpiece in his shed. But instead of him sort of coming out and saying, look at this labor of love, and everyone says, wow, you must have worked really hard on that. Yeah, that kid's liking it. Uh, (laughs) Instead, Jesus comes out and says, this is my my passion project that is not just uh, something I put all my work into, but it is remarkable and astoundingly beautiful and just the way I've always wanted it. Who are you in Christ? You're alive, you're saved, you're all of those things, but you're also created and shaped as God's masterpiece. No other tweaking or or changes that he's trying to do to make you more beautiful, because in Christ, you get to display the radiance of Jesus. So while before, when I was talking about all these sins, you might have been thinking, oh, like, I'm a pornographer, I'm an adulterer, I'm a liar, I'm a, I'm a thief, I'm an abuser, I'm a manipulator, I'm an egotistical jerk, I'm a judgmental, gossipy person. 
In this passage, he says, you're not any of those things. You are the handiwork. You're his masterpiece created by God in Christ Jesus. You were a son of disobedience, a child of wrath, but you are alive with him. Created by the one who rose from the dead and raises you from the dead. And this is uh, how, at least in a small part, hopefully a big part, I guess, our church works. It's, it's, this is the, the passion behind how we organize and how we try to even motivate anybody to do anything. It's to, to step back and say, this is the message of God. This is what Jesus has done. None of us deserve to be in this body. And the rest of the chapters go on to make that really clear. Why are we a unified church? Why do we serve one another and care for one another? Why do we try to care for our city and love the people around us and tell them this good news? Because we were dead and now we've been made alive. We used to have a whole scroll of identity statements about all of the things that we've done. We were defined by the ills that we did. We were defined by the property that we trespassed into. We were defined by the work that we did with our hands and with our mouths. But Christ raised us from the dead, made us alive, and has created us as a masterpiece. That that all of our doing as a church is an outflow of our identity that we've been given in Christ because of God's amazing work that he's done already. It's why we remind ourselves that we are his children, that we're a family. It's why we remind ourselves that that we're citizens of the kingdom of God and we get to serve Jesus as the king and no other thing do we get to do that with. It's why we remind ourselves that because of the gospel, we've been made uh, ambassadors for the message of reconciliation. We're missionaries sent by the Spirit of God, empowered by this power to make the darkness become light. He says that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. I think often, even in my state, when when grace is the belief that I don't want to hold... I want to think that good works leads to becoming a masterpiece. So if I work really good, then I can become created by God. And then God will love me, and then God will save me, and then I can become alive. This passage shows us clearly that it's the complete opposite direction. That as raised people, we're his masterpiece. And then the good work that we do is from that source of identity and that power. This is good news, right? Few people said amen. Why don't we practice as a church? I think we should do that, right? So I'm going to say, Jesus rose from the dead and raises us up with him, and you all say, amen. All right, that was good practice. I'm going to do it again. Jesus rose from the dead, and because of his love, he raises us up from the dead. And we're his masterpiece. That's good. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. That you are so loving. That you would even come up with a plan like this would have been loving. 
but that you have seen it to the end. That your love doesn't know any bounds with us. Jesus, we're in awe of you. As we come to the table, I pray that we're reminded of your misfit table and how we get to be counted among the sick and the sinners that you have made whole. Thank you for raising these dead, decaying bones to life. Amen.